Good morning. Good morning. Um, I'm going to pray for us, so let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you have given us, that you have awakened our souls, Lord, to know your grace, your mercy, and your truth through your Son, Jesus. And we ask, Lord, that as we attend to these words from Isaiah this morning, Lord, that you would give us living understanding. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would rest on us, would rest on Donna. Lord, that we would have more insight into who you are and who you are calling us to be. And so we offer you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Carmen. Um, so today we're studying chapters 59 and 60 of, uh, of Isaiah. And I'm going to ask you to go ahead and open up your Bibles to that because I was thinking of having you do, do a little bit of the work. <laughs> we never make you do that, but, you know, as a teacher for 33 years, and it's like in my blood. I don't know. I don't know. All right. But surprisingly, we're starting with, we're going to begin today's lesson with Genesis. Because in Genesis, we also find what we find in Isaiah 59 and 60. We find deep darkness, splendorous light, and a garden home where God and man walk together. Genesis. In the beginning. In the beginning, God created. And he spoke into that deep darkness and said, Let there be light. And there was light. Imagine darkness that's deep like that. So dark that you can't see anything. Not even your hand in front of your face. And then, light. And with it comes clarity, definition, recognition, and finally, at last, understanding. And the fruit of that understanding is acknowledgement. That's Isaiah 59. Deep spiritual darkness. On August 15, 1969, on a dairy farm in Bethel, New York, a three-day music festival began. It was billed as an Aquarian Exposition, three days of peace and music. Do any of you have any idea? What this Are you going there with me? Woodstock. Yes, exactly. But as I, you know, I didn't know it was billed that way. But um, I didn't know that. That's such an interesting phrase, Aquarian exposition. And for the half million young people that gathered at the 601 acre, uh, the it, it meant something. That was a that was because I remember the song because it was the dawning of the age of Aquarius the end. yeah is that not in our psyches it just is for those of us from that generation but uh, that it's a new age term and the term held a promise it promised a dominant worldview in which the individual is allowed their freedom and boy do we see a lot of that going on at Woodstock 
freedom to actualize as an independently liberated being and still participate in group life in the spirit of humanitarianism and altruism. Well, uh, you might not know this, but I'm a Joni Mitchell wannabe, and she wrote that song. My, I'm such a bad Joni Mitchell wannabe that when my daughter, you know, there's a time in your life when your children kind of ride shotgun in the car with you all the time. That, that, that too passes. But my daughter and I would be riding in the car, and I'd put on the Joni Mitchell CDs, and we would be singing her at the top of our lungs all through Durham. You know, yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> we just did. And she loves Joni Mitchell, too. But um, Joni Mitchell was at Woodstock, and she wrote a song and uh, that recorded that event. You know, it sort of chronicled the event. And um, her song embodied this Aquarian worldview that uh, was held by uh, these young people. And these young people, I must say, are now our politicians. They're our teachers. They're our university professors, parents, grandparents of the current generation. And to understand this current generation, you might want to go back and just take a look at that one. A couple of the clues are freedom, independently liberated, uh, but still participate in altruism and humanitarianism. And does that not sort of define where we are right now um, in our culture? I think it. I think it does. Those are real marks. But anyway, listen to her lyrics. Well, I came upon a child of God. This is Jenny's lyrics. He was walking along the road. And by the way, I just want to say, there was a, a, a cult called the Children of God. I think that's who she was talking about. Not a real child of God. <laughs> Let's see. And I asked him, tell me, where are you going? This, he told me, said, I'm going down to Yasgur's farm. Going to join a rock and roll band. Got, got to get back to the land and set my soul free. We are stardust. We are golden. We are billion-year-old carbon. And we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. Well then, can I roam beside you? I have come to lose the smog. And I feel myself a cog in something turning. And maybe it's the time of year. Yes, and maybe it's the time of man. And I don't know who I am, but life is for learning. We are stardust. We are golden. We are billion-year-old carbon, and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. By the time we got to Woodstock, we were half a million strong, and everywhere was a song and celebration. And I dreamed I saw the bomber death planes riding shotgun in the sky turning into butterflies above our nation we are stardust we are golden we are caught in the devil's bargain and we gotta get ourselves back to the garden the garden try though we might sisters we can not get ourselves back to the garden It holds, that garden holds so much promise and hope to us. Humanity longs for it even now. Security. Peace.
peace, justice, the garden where God and man walked together and man was clothed. He was clothed with God's righteousness and holiness and through deception, temptation, and sin, he was stripped naked by Satan. God mercifully cast him out of the garden. Mercifully. And he placed a guard at the entrance so that the man would not eat of the tree of life and be enslaved forever in death and decay. And in this way, God set the stage for the hope for, of redemption and restoration. And he began to enact his great rescue mission. Isaiah 59 opens up to the words that God speaks to his prophet as he addresses some accusations of his people. Now, we don't know if you're just reading Isaiah 59 and 60. You're not exactly sure what those accusations are, but you can imagine what they are because of the way God responds to them. Um, We imagine, we know, I think if you go back in some of their chapters, that they've claimed that God cannot rescue them that he's somehow unable to rescue them, that he's too weak, and that he's deaf because he hasn't answered their cries for help. This echoes the words of the people that we read in in, uh, Isaiah 58.3, in which they said, but we fasted before you. Why aren't you impressed? In essence, we've jumped through your prescribed religious hoops. We've done religious stuff. We've fasted, we've dressed in sackcloth and looked mournful for our sins, etc. But God's already told them, you just pretended. You act pious. You seem delighted by me. You pretend to want to be near me. It's all for show. And then in 59.2 he says, your sins have cut you off from me. They've become a thick cloud, and that's hidden my face from you. And you, and it stopped at my ears, so you can't hear my voice anymore. And so, I've turned away. And I won't listen to your pretentious voices anymore. That's essentially what Isaiah 59, first three chapters, is saying. And then, he, the prophet, holds up a mirror to deep spiritual darkness. The deep spiritual darkness that the, that the people are in. So dark, they can't see their hands in front of their faces. In verse 4 to 8, God catalogs once again their sin. He's done this before in Isaiah. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, why is this, why are we doing this again? It's because he's making a point that's just got to get through. And the point is that man is unable to rescue himself from the spoilage and the destructive nature of sin and the resultant spiritual death that it brings. And so the catalog is found in verses 3 through 7, and I was wondering if we could do it together. So if you will look at verse 3 and come up with the what you read in verse 3 as that is cataloged there the sins that are cataloged there and 
perhaps this table would be willing to do that, the one straight in front of me right here. And if you all would do verse 4, that'd be great. And verse 5, this table. And verse 6, this table. And uh, verse 7. I'm kind of just going around like this. Okay. So you guys, woohoo! <laughs> You're off the hook. Yeah, yeah. So the back three tables. Yeah, okay. <laughs> You're good. We'll get you another time. So the minute you're ready, let's start with verse 3. What does happen? What sins are? You know, I said start with verse 3, but we can start with any verse of those verses if y'all want. said we'd start with verse 3, but as soon as you guys are ready, just tell us what verse you're doing and go. Tell us what verse you got yours from. evil schemes that mean they scheme to to do evil things uh, who else is ready um, we can go okay six um, six so it's there any work effort the deeds that they do it's all iniquity sin it just produces nothing but evil and violence violent deeds so the work of yeah. the hands to try to close themselves Violent works and violent deeds, yes. Okay, that leaves four and three. We have um, lack of integrity and lies. Okay, very good. three, we have murder and lying and saying really bad stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, murder, lies, corruption. 
and for unjust government and just exactly what you said, Hannah. All right, well, we all know that Paul uh, spoke a lot from Isaiah in his letters, and he, he used this portion of Isaiah in his letters too. Um, in Romans, his letters to the Romans, and um, in verses 15 through 20, and it sort of summarized this catalog. And it also helped identify the big problem, the real problem. They blamed God, but the blame did not lie with God. They rushed to commit murder, verse 15. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. Although the casualties, as we see here, are peace and justice, since there can be no peace except on the basis of righteousness, the real problem is that they have no relationship with God. Um, Our author of our Bible study lists in the back of her book some of the uh, resources that she used to come up with our Bible study. And one of them was a book called Teaching Isaiah by David Jackman. And I bought that book. (laughs) And it's really helped me a lot. It helped me today. I loved what he said about this. He said, what is supremely true of humans in relationship with God is equally true of humans in relationship with another, with one another. Because love for God will always result in love for neighbor. I think that's really how I go, yeah. That it sucks. So you can imagine that if they had no relationship with God and no love for God, then you can get the picture of the deep darkness that they find themselves in. This relationship begins with this love that we have for God, that we have, and that we share. It begins with repentance. In fact, the aim of the passage that we just kind of reviewed, it's to, uh, that we explored, it was to move the hearers to confess, to repent, and to cast themselves on the mercy of God. It's the very response that we're going to encounter now in verses 9 through 15. Some of Isaiah's hearers do just that. And we call them the righteous remnant. They alone acknowledge the deep spiritual darkness they find themselves in. As these words, which use the article, they, give way to the article, we. In verse 8, it says this. They don't know where to find peace or what it means to be just and good. But verse 9 says, So there is no justice among us, and we know nothing about right living. We look for light, but find only darkness. Verse 10, Even at brightest noontime we stumble as though it were dark among the living. We are like the dead, not they, we. We look for justice, but it never comes. We look for rescue, but it's far away from us. Verse 12, for our sins, our sins, are piled up before God, and they testify against us. 
verse 13, we have turned our backs on God. Don't forget how it all started out. They were blaming God. He wasn't listening. But now, they are taking, they're saying, no, we. Finally, it's acknowledgement. It's true repentance. True repentance always acknowledges the situation as God sees it, without excuse or denial. And then the most marvelous thing happens. In response to that, in response to true repentance, which restores, in verse 15 it says, now remember they said that the Lord's uh, face, that he had turned his face away. It says the Lord looked. He turned his face back. And now he looks and he sees a problem. He sees the problem. He sees that no one will intervene to help the oppressed. And so in verse 16, he steps in to save them with his... Not Remember they said he, he was too weak? His arm was too weak? He steps in to save them with his strong arm. And his justice sustained him. He put on righteousness as his body armor and placed the helmet of salvation on his head. He clothed himself with a robe of vengeance and wrapped himself in a cloak of divine passion. And so this begins the portrait of not the suffering servant, but the sovereign conqueror, which is where Isaiah is leading us. The fulfillment of all the promises. This is where God rises up and becomes the warrior. Um, I don't know about you, but sometimes I really struggle with Bible words. Words like, okay, culturally I know what the word justice means, but what does it mean inside our biblical frame of reference? Culturally, and I've never known what the word righteousness meant. (laughs) You know, I just can't even, I look in definitions, and they, they tell you like the components of righteousness, but they can't really, you know, dictionaries can't really tell you. Um, uh, and so I have a theory about that, and I'll tell you what it is, why that is. So, um, so in my struggle, I started to search for something that helped me to understand these two words, because they crop up over and over and over again in Isaiah, and particularly in context to the suffering servant and now the, uh, the sovereign conqueror. So, I found this, and it was written by Ray Stedman, and I thought it was really helpful. So this is all Ray. These are his words. He says, There are two terms that occur frequently in the Old Testament, and they are often found in conjunction with one another. The terms righteousness and justice. The word righteousness in the Old Testament means to bring a thing into conformity with a standard or a norm. In other words, they would refer to weights that were accurate as righteous weights. They would conform to a norm, to a standard. In the Old Testament, evergreen trees are described as trees of righteousness because they always look as a tree ought to look. They never drop their leaves during the winter, and they are righteous trees. The term basically means to bring a thing into conformity with what it ought to be to establish it according to the right standard in the Old 
in the Old Testament, the standard is the character of God. So righteousness means bringing something into conformity with the character of God. Now, how are we going to ever know the character of God? How? By knowing God. How am I ever going to know your character? If I have no relationship with you, how am I ever going to know your character? And that is... uh, that's how we know the righteousness of God because it is his character it's based on his character his character reveals that to us justice is the outworking of righteousness it's the application of righteousness it's the action by which the king or some other person brings about a state of righteousness in the nation Justice is the practical application of righteousness. So when Isaiah, in in our previous chapters, talked about the servant of the Lord, and he said the servant of the Lord will bring about justice in the world, he's saying that he will establish things according to a right standard. He will, they will be as they ought to be. Whether we're talking about our homes or society, ourselves, it's the servant of the Lord that's the only one that can get things aligned with God's standard. No one else can. There's no alternative. And here, in Isaiah 59, the sovereign conqueror looks, he sees, and he takes action. He sees the desperate situation. He sees the cause of the deep darkness. He sees that humanity is beyond help. And he decides to intervene himself. He is the all-sufficient one. No situation is too dark or desperate for him to deal with. He girds himself for battle like a warrior and is totally committed to saving his people. Any thought that he's indifferent like they thought at the beginning or powerless, that's utterly pushed out of their minds. And for you and I, there's nothing that we can achieve that will overcome our fallen sinful nature. I love Joni Mitchell's song, Woodstock. I mean, after all, it was the anthem of my generation. Our society is living in its echoes every day. However, Joni, we're not golden. We're not stardust. We're just dust to whom God has attributed great value because of who he is, his character, not because of who we are. And the only one who will return us to the garden is God himself. And by the garden, I mean our home, where we will once again walk and talk with God in the cool of the day. God must intervene, and he does. He does what is needed. He delivers his people. He crushes their enemies, and he ushers in the return to the garden. A favorite movie of mine is oddly enough called Stardust. Have you guys ever seen that movie? It's called Stardust. It's a great little fairy tale. And it's a story about a fallen star named Yvain who longs to return to her home in the heavens. There's, it's also about a young man named Tristan who has promised uh, the fallen star, he's 
promised to give this fallen star once he finds it to his who the to the woman that he thinks is his true love, although it's not. And then also, it's about an evil cast of characters that are out to catch and capture Evain for their own self-serving purposes. The most threatening of these evil characters is a very evil witch, and this witch does succeed in catching Evain and almost takes her life, except for one thing, stars shine. So when Yvain and Tristan, who have fallen in love, are threatened by this stealthily approaching witch, she's got this cleaver in her hand, and she's ready to attack and destroy them, Yvain clutches Tristan, and she asks him to cling to her, and when he does, his love for her causes her to do what she does best. Shine. To great my Majestic intensity. She shines powerfully. So powerfully that the glory emanates out of her from, from her in waves that ring out around them and explode into a shimmer of light and it dispels and breaks the power of the darkness and the evil witch and it destroys her, the evil witch too. That's Isaiah 60. Let's look at it now. It's where we find the description of the brilliant light of the Lord who rises up out of this deep darkness to envelop Jerusalem and fill her with his glory. The glory being the outshining of the inner essence of God's person and his so that he himself is the light that illuminates the world's deep, thick darkness. Now, who is my favorite commentator on Isaiah? <laughs> who do I plagiarize, plagiarize shamelessly? Why, it's Barry G. Webb, of course. <laughs> I've talked about him so many times. Anyway, um, And he says that the deep darkness of chapter 59 gives way to the brilliant light. Just like in that movie. Could the deep darkness just... It's gone. Just like the deep darkness of Genesis gave way when God spoke and said, let there be light. If the previous chapter was a long, dark tunnel, 59, this is the light at the end of it. It's... What we've been waiting for and longing for. Our exile from the garden is over. As the people of Israel were exiled from Jerusalem and joyfully returned, we too will return home to New Jerusalem. And so we read in verse 1, Arise, Jerusalem. Let your light shine for all to see, for the glory of the Lord rises to shine on you. Verse 2, darkness as black as night covers all the nations of the earth, but the glory of the Lord rises and appears over you. All nations will come to your light 
God's glory is revealed. It's a mystery no longer. In these ways, in this chapter, as you all read through it, you will find these things. Number one, his glory is revealed in transforming his people. His glory is revealed in bringing his people home from every part of the world. And as they come home, they come home with wealth and honor. His glory is revealed in causing their enemies to submit and provide them with service and security. And it's revealed in accomplishing an absolute, complete, and perfect salvation. So, I want to end with two things. One is a story, and it's a true story. Um, It's about the children that I taught at Trinity School for 12 years. Um, Each year we would present a program, parent present a program, and it was called Lessons and Carols. And one of the carols that we learned was O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. That's how we sang it today. Um, And it is a really rich text. The tune is actually an old um, chant. And uh, it's been put in a meter and made into a hymn. But that's why it seems so different to our ears, because it was an old chant. And the words... Uh, for elementary school children are like, you know, it's hard enough for us to understand those words, right? So we would only do the first verse. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. And so I'd help them to identify the words, and then we'd act it out. Words like exile, ransom, right? Think elementary child. (laughs) Captive Israel. So... We get the, one of the children, I ask one of the children, would you please just stand outside the door? I'll keep the door open at all times. And while you're out there, I want you to pretend to cry. And so they'd have a little fun going, and sniffle. And um, while they were out there, I'd tell them, I'd say to the rest of the students, this student has been exiled from our classroom. He's in exile. He's sad. He's mourning in lo- and he's lonely. He's mourning in lonely exile. You know, and that's the way we would identify Israel. The Israel we find in chapter 59. Mourning and grieving in the separation from the living God in our true home. We're mourning in lonely exile. Here. And then the child would come back in the room and we'd talk about what the word ransom. So we'd write a pretend note on the board to their teacher telling the teacher that I'd kidnapped her students and if she wanted them back, she'd have to give me a big box of candy or something like that. <laughs> and this was the ransom note that we would pretend to send to the teacher and say, You want them back? Come get them. Come pay the ransom for your captive class and ransom captive Israel who mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Come at last to get his people. And then we'd kind of sit in silence for a while because we were waiting, waiting, 
you know, you know, silence is really hard on little kids. <laughs> so even 30 seconds of silence was just, they're dying. Okay, so when that time was over and we pretended that the teacher was at the door, we'd say, rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel has come. He has ransomed us indeed. He has come. And when he returns, my dear sisters, it won't be as the suffering servant, but as the sovereign conqueror. And he will establish his kingdom, gather all his people, and put everything to rights to return and restore all the way it should be the way it was created to be. And I will leave you with an encouragement. My favorite verse from Isaiah 60 is, is from, from this chunk of scripture we just did, is Isaiah 60, verse 22. That seems strange. It says, at the right time, I, the Lord, will make it happen. So, waiting is hard. It was really hard for children. It's really hard for adults. But God's timing is absolutely perfect and he will return at the right time. But there's also other things that he will do and is doing at the right time. So here's a couple questions. How often do you think that um, making it happen is your job? How often do you think that God can't accomplish anything much without you? That attitude affects how we live, how we work, how we pray, how we interact with our faith community. And what does it produce inside of us? Anxiety. Deep darkness. Not the light of God's glory. Not rest, but striving. I love this verse because it reassures me that it's God's work. It's not my work. However, I have the joy of participating with him in his work when he invites me in. Do you, for example, do you have someone you're praying for now? For salvation? I do. My son. I've told you over and over again about my son. Uh, He's so far from God, raised in this church from a baby. And he and his, but here's something that you might like to know. That God is always at work. It's God's work. It's not mine. He and his fiance have been taking acting classes and they, they've been acting in, in small films, although they are now signed with an agent, so that may change to larger and better paying jobs. But their first acting coach and the one that they have loved the best, um, and greatly influenced them, I noticed their talking changed. She, is starring in a major film. It's a faith-based film. It's called Unplanned. She plays the lead role. She was their drama coach. She's their acting coach. They loved her. Her name is Ashley Bratcher. Just think, all those acting classes that they took with her. I noticed that they were a little warmer towards the things of God during the time that she was coaching them. And this encourages me. Margaret Frothingham often says that God is always working, and indeed he always is, 
always. Are you praying for someone to know the Lord and live in his light? At the right time, the Lord will make it happen. Let's pray. Father, help us trust you. Please help us trust you. There's so much we cannot see. There's so much we cannot do. We can't save ourselves. We can't deal with the deep darkness. We long for your light. You must rise as you have in many of us. You must care for these that we are ineffectively unable to care for now for whatever reason. Speak to our hearts, reassure us, and turn us to put it all in your hands and to say, yes, Lord, I trust in you. In the name of Christ, our Lord and Savior and mighty warrior, we pray. Amen.